It was a bleak, cold morning, and the sea was as leaden as the sky. The first three men had offered their lives to the drowned god fearlessly, but the fourth was weak in faith and began to struggle as his lungs cried out for air. Standing waist-deep in the surf, Aaron seized the naked boy by the shoulders and pushed his head back down as he tried to snatch a breath. Have courage, he said. We came from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Open your mouth and drink deep of God's blessing. Fill your lungs with water, that you may die and be reborn. It does no good to fight. Great North, to Great Wick, the Prophet, the Captain of Guards, and Hannah's back. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am back after last week's uh, disaster. That was not well. It wasn't really a disaster. It could have been a disaster. So it's good to be back for real. You found your second life confidently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was drowned and brought back. What's dead can never die. But rises. But rise stronger. Again. First off, hello to everyone. We've been having a conversation with each other recording for that other show we do for Patreon, and that's been a lot of fun, and it's a very fun Sunday, and the gravity of these two chapters has swiftly fallen upon us like it does most weeks, right? But I think even now more so than before because we're traveling to places we have not yet traveled. Mm-hmm. And and two chapters here where they're very cryptic in terms of their names. We don't know right off the bat who these people are because we get their titles as opposed to getting their actual name and right it's exciting yeah you're we're as was mentioned we're back in a feast for crows uh and if we were going through this book the way that it was initially written we would have just left pate uh dying uh back in old town but you know last week we went to the wall uh and uh spent time with john uh, and now we are in a completely new place, a place that we have never gone before, not just in this chapter with the prophet, but also in the next chapter uh, with the captain of the guards. Seeing Dorne in the books, not to get too far ahead, but seeing Dorne in the books, seeing um, the Ironborn, the Iron Men, what they're all about, learning what they're all, all about in this chapter. Can I just say, and I know we got Simone's about this too, but like, how amazing and not like done justice to in the show as this been so far. Like I know the Ironborn stuff is mostly coming in the future, but we've been to Pike a couple of times in the show when it hasn't necessarily happened in the books uh, or when it has, but I'm just saying like the intensity, the, these new worlds are being, these new parts of this same world are being created uh, here and they're fleshed out so marvelously and so easily you can it's it's very easy to swallow like seawater um to really find out what these men are all about what they're going on about i think that us entering this chapter with aaron Greyjoy, with the prophet and his storied past and the kind of people that inhabit the iron islands the, the the different islands that have different sizes and with different sizes come resting places comes homes and locations that are further and further away from the sea so i we have a bit of a i don't i don't really know the exact word for it but this is this is as gray joy not as brutal and strong as we'll eventually find but this is as connected with the sea as connected with the drowned god 
as I think we could get, right? This is the prophet. His hair has been growing since the moment he came into his next life after he was drowned and salt blessed the inside of his body. The brutality that we witness right here, it's playing host to, I know it's a religious ceremony and it's something that is being viewed as uh, a crucial step to all of those faithful come back. But it's it's just so brutal because they're essentially drowning these men. It's really almost no different than viewing Melisandre burning men alive. I mean, I understand fewer people come back from that, but ultimately you're killing people in the name of your religion. And these people are um, pledged to be pious about it. And men, it says, are suffering the drowning silently. I mean, right? It's the whole thing with, with Aaron opening up on the the fourth guy whose faith was weak. No, his body is reacting because it needs oxygen. It's not that he's weak of faith. But apparently, these men are so hard and hard-bitten that some of them can drown without complaint. <laughs> Be drowned without complaint. How badass is that? Absolutely. And I'm so excited for what is to come the sixth season, because like you said, Eric, we haven't explored, while we have a bit, we haven't explored a lot of the Iron Men. And I'm, I don't know, I, I, we've had lots of conversations. Mike, I remember when I first started the read of A Feast for Crows during the holiday, you were, we, I think we just like texted about this chapter. We we're like, yeah, he's drowning. He's drowning people. <laughs> It kind of makes sense to me, though, as I was reading about this, kind of trying to figure out, you know, I just think that religion is very fascinating and why people believe what they believe. And I had this thought that it makes sense that they would drown people because it kind of gives them dominance over the sea, which governs their life. And so, you know, you're a fisherman or you're a pirate or whatever, and the threat of being drowned is always there. But if you know you can conquer it and come back from it, that's kind of a cool that's kind of a cool dominance, I guess, over your fear, right? Fear, right? Yeah. It's the first time that you're seeing inside the mind of a Greyjoy that has not been spending his entire life with the Starks, right? So you, you, you could go and you can say, well, Theon is a Greyjoy, but... Where's this? Right. Mm-hmm. You, you get much more of a sense of somebody who has grown up and lived in the Iron Islands, and and that has created the man that we're seeing today. And and you know he talks about how he lived his life previously, and and what happened to him, and how you know Stannis smashed his his fleet, and he spent a lot of his time beneath Casterly Rock before he was finally freed. And and when he was, he became this new man, right? He became this pious individual, uh, you know, Aaron Damphair. Um, which you know, I mean, come on, we could have come up. Maybe we could have come up with a little bit of a better nickname than. I Dan mean, it's hair. very fitting. He hasn't chopped his hair off since yeah. he became it's, it's this. Not new... as cool as Stormborn, but his hair is always good. wet, though. So yeah, hey. it's pretty cool. And he's got he's got seaweed woven between his long hair that goes down to his lower back, and it's woven in with his hair and his beard. So naughty and gross. Like this is a man to behold, and the salt has made it coarse. And this is the guy that is drowning and reintroducing these people to a life after being drowned. And I just think of what he says to the Good Brothers when one is too afraid to dismount his horse for fear of getting his feet wet, which he as the prophet who believes as he believes. And you'll just have to read this chapter because it's hard for us to really wax the level of prose that George does. He really drives in this connection and just pure 
ecstatic love for all that is connected with the sea, from their weapons coming from the sea to him even taking a glug of salt water himself. This is just, this is what he believes in. And when he sees that that person doesn't dismount, he he, he has like this very tiny aside, which I think is a, a great little reference to almost all that we've been talking about, which is the Ironborn used to lay waste and shake anything connected to the sea. Like we completely control, like this is, these are the people that, would be drowned and come back and would relentlessly not have fear for the rest of their, I guess you could say careers as not necessarily pirates, but as, as, as these people, as reavers. And how do you stand against an opponent that does not fear death that has died and that has returned? I mean, you you stand with them, you stand against them less confidently than you would have if they weren't those sorts of people. (laughs) That's for sure. Very fierce, more so than soft lordlings or, the kind of men that trade with lances, and that's not to say. See, that's just a clash of all these different disciplines, right? Well, it's yeah, but it's the perfect companion to these people who uh, do not sow. They take uh, and take and take, take everything that they want, and they dictate their own terms. They have this religion that basically hardens them to do this. They they go hand in hand. Um, he tells the boy, "You belong to the god now. You know, uh, you belong to the sea now. The sea has armed you." We pray that you shall wield your cudgel fiercely against all the enemies of our god, turning what they do, which is probably raping and pillaging, the same thing as men are doing all over the world uh, of Westeros and beyond right now, turning that into a um, crusade, a god's you know fight, uh, giving them a greater purpose, and having it be backed by the fact that they've all died um, before and been drowned and then come back really shows that the god favors them and that what they're doing is absolutely supported. There's a lot of judgment, though, on the part of, of Aaron uh, throughout the chapter. You know, he he looks at uh, a lot of the other families, especially those that don't live as closely to the water as, as mm-hmm. <laughs> not really being of equal yeah. value. I know Zach mentioned the fact that, you know, when, when Gormand, right, gets off of his horse. One of them. Yeah, he doesn't want to for the for the fear of the water possibly touching his feet. And th- there you, you get a very real sense of the level at which Aaron holds the, the drowned god and and what this means to him and and you know a lot of it's probably due to the the transformation that he underwent becoming this new individual, but mm. you know, we we've talked so many times on this show about the importance of religion and, and how it influences many of the characters that we come in, in contact with throughout the course of this series. And now we're starting to get the sense that we need to be focusing, at least as we go through these chapters, on the drowned god and and what that means to somebody like Aaron or even the other members of the Greyjoy family. Maybe they don't hold it in, in as high value, the, the, the Eurons and the, and the Victorians of the world will come to see but for a story that kind of opens talking about the seven and and, and you know it's, it's just it, it feels like it's becoming much more the, the story is having much more of a religious undertone as as we progress through um and this is just kind of a new area for us to learn more about yeah so, and it's a very it's a very mm-hmm. firm way to explain the actions of these people not just the people that we see through a perspective but to all of those that surround them. In this chapter, men ride to give him news, and when they ride forward, they see him in the water with his hair and all of his glory. He's this man, this damp hair, this 
sort of mythic individual, I would guess, within their kingdom. And he's carrying the body of a dead boy back to the sea, and he resuscitates him, the book says. Another one returned. It was a sign of the drowned god's favor, men said. Every other priest lost a man from time to time, even Tarl the Thrice Drowned, who had once been thought so holy that he was picked to crown a king. But never Aaron Greyjoy. He was the damp hair who had seen the gods' own watery halls and returned to tell of it. Rise, he told the sputtering boy as he slapped him on his naked back. You have drowned and been returned to us. What is dead can never die. Then the boy says, but rises. The boy coughed violently, bringing up more water. Rises again. Every word was bought with pain, but that was the way of the world. A man must fight to live. Rises right. again. Emin staggered to his feet, harder and stronger. This is kind of a little bit of an aside, but I texted one of my medical friends asking them if, I mean, this sounds like CPR, if it's if th- th- there can actually be a success rate as high as this. Can we really like bring that many people Ooh. back? And okay. they said that, and I'm, I apologize for people who may be smarter than me and say I'm doing <laughs> this all wrong, but problems with CPR is that when you work to revive both the lungs and the heart, it's less successful, but because when you're drowning, it typically you're just trying to revive or take care of your lungs because that's where the water is. And so having a 100% success rate is actually fairly believable. Like that's a real thing that could happen. So I was like, all right. Huh. It's it's fascinating because, um, you know, Mike, you're talking about the religion and how it, how it plays into the lives of the characters and so much as we're moving forward and how it explains how so many of these people act. But if we go into this sort of, I don't want to say archaic, but the sort of the level of technology and the level of awareness of not only Westeros or Essos, but just the entire story in general, you know, we can associate certain things with having come down from gods if we don't necessarily understand the, the medical science behind it. And uh, it just so happens that this is something that says a lot in the drowned god's favor if they're able to do it well. And who would do it better than the person who is the priest of essentially bringing people back to life from drowning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's really good at it. Yeah, but all of these men get to live, but they also get to have the memory of having drowned with them every day, and that is certainly not something I would ever care to experience, even if I'm still alive afterwards. But it would. Yeah. don't you think it would make you stronger, Eric, if you yeah, um, were drowned? Yeah, absolutely think about it, it. Think about it. You rise I, harder and stronger. I like when, who was it? Uh, Spar is his name when he when Aaron asks him if he's Safarian. even been drowned and he was like yeah I was drowned as a boy and my son on his name day and, <laughs> and he's like yeah I'm sure you were you know dipped into the tub of seawater that barely touched your head like that doesn't really count so. which is what we know as as baptism, baptism. Yeah. yeah right I, I was not expecting in reading the Song of Ice and Fire that the religion that most closely uh, appears, at least on surface, to be extremely close to Catholicism in some of its ritual would be the rituals of these pirates, the religion of, of these pirates on this. Uh, what did it say in the show? Shit stained rocks. Like, <laughs> just this, this crappy ass backwards place where everything is hard fought and hard won. It's, it's uh, hard not to recognize the similarity between christianity and this religion i think even some of the wordage feels more that way than uh other religions that we've seen so far so it's pretty evocative i think yeah i had that same thought sets a heck of a tone i'm just happy we're we're talking about the Greyjoys together though guys like eric not as happy as eric your dream come true right this is it 
This, this is all is you ever wanted. Close. This is pretty close to my dream come true. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be experiencing the Greyjoy subplot finally. Um, things that I've only heard hints about uh, before. Um, finding out everything that there is to know about these people, how they run their lives. Asha, uh, I think, is next too, and it's just it's it's going to be a, a wild, wet ride <laughs> through the <laughs> through the through the rocks and the in the sea. I've been so excited to talk about all of this with you guys and with the listeners when I was doing the read through. I, I, you know, we were always told that here they come, the Greyjoys are coming, and the news that uh, we've had casting for Euron. And so we, we, we know it's going to play a larger part in the show, but I also knew that the books that we had yet to read, uh, what was coming, and to finally, you know, for it to be at the beginning of the book and for it to be sort of dotted out within the rest of A Feast for Crows and more later. I was just so exciting, and it's so, I don't want to say cool, but these chapters are so damn cool, mm-hmm. right? And it only gets better from here, and it only gets more interesting. We, we, get, we get set up. Aaron snorts. He judges. He thinks. He commands. The being inside of this guy's head is unlike any other character that we've read so far. And he tells us of his brothers, and he tells us of the lineage, and he tells us of stories of the people that basically built this modern dynasty in the Iron Islands, which is just, it's its populist, you know, it matters. and It makes me think, what if there were so many more of these people, these people who get drowned and come back and who fight with so much fierce vigor? What would happen if there are more of them? I just think of, you know, even transiting to the next chapter, we have a blood orange falling, and oh, that's like a bitter blood orange. I think it's over oversaturated and mm, i'll have some chickpea paste right just compared to what's happening in this chapter it's just hilarious it's no it's and it's a hell of a first a first chapter this is the first proper chapter of course the prologue with pate featured uh, a little bit of what we uh, imagined to be magic and then but then here it's sort of the hard hard wrought life of well you may or may not have the god's favor and if you don't you're drowned and dead and that's the way we live and it's it's a stark contrast, but also, I mean, we've been hearing about these people for books, so right. to finally witness them fully. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the great thing, right? A Feast for Crows, first three chapters, Old Town, mm-hmm. Great Wick, and now going to Dorne. Uh, mm-hmm. So your mind has been expanded just in the first three chapters of this book. The world has been expanded in the first three chapters of this book, and it's really uh, cool to be able to go and to experience everything that you do, knowing that everything that you've read previously is influencing these people in different parts of this world. Now you're finally starting to get a sense of the level of impact and how they're going to respond. Mm -hmm. And these writers that were mentioned already, they're bringing news of the fact that Balin Greyjoy is dead. The king is dead. And <laughs> right, and there's to, <laughs> to him there's only one king, right? And that king is Balin Greyjoy. And it, it, there was and and we've talked about this in in many of our other chapter analysis episodes, but these two chapters being paired together, it was very reminiscent both of these chapters of each other. Why? Because you have uh, Aaron learning of his brother's death, dark wings, dark words. And then there's mm-hmm. a reference in the next chapter of Prince Doran when he received dark wings, dark words about Oberyn. And, you know, I don't think it's 
coincidental that you have those two connections between the chapters. You have brothers learning of their brother's death and, and how they're now going to respond as a result of that. And the pieces are being recast after all that we've gone through, right? After all this time, we're receiving news. And we, we learned of what happened to Balin Greyjoy before but with different people. But now we're learning of it through the eyes, through the mind of his brother and what will happen within his kingdom. It's hard for us to say that we all took the Iron Islands incredibly serious up until this point. Mm-hmm. We sure do now. Yeah. We sure do now, which is which is great. And, and it took us three books and however many years for it to happen. And I'd like to think that that's what the show is also doing. I know there were some, some complaints that the Balon Greyjoy storyline wasn't touched on earlier, the fact that they haven't you know, said that he's passed away in the show yet. You know, so I'd like to think that in a perfect world, much like it took a long time for these pieces to be reset up again, that maybe the show's doing that. And maybe we'll get Balon Greyjoy dying. And maybe because of that death, because of what's happening, we'll see more stuff happen with Theon and Asha. And we'll start to see this stuff. The stuff that Aaron eventually gets to in this chapter coming to pass. And hopefully that means these people... I, I, there's so much like there's other chapters that I could talk about my great joy excitement and, and <laughs> with more fury later on. Cause uh, when we get to Victorian, it's just like, Oh man. But I guess we can go ahead and say like, I am so, is it wrong that I'm rooting for the great joys? And I don't even know what that means because w- they don't want much. So it's like, we could just not, root for them <laughs> in a, right. They just want the iron islands. They want to reeve and they want to be terrible people. But I just, I, I got to respect after being in the minds of, of so many planners and, you know, close by with Littlefinger and all that he's doing with Sansa and all that he's doing at the Vale and all the planning and scheming and taking advantage of other people. It's just something kind of refreshing about being in the minds of these people who are just so, all right, down I, I to business. To, I have to be honest. Uh, my goal for this whole, you know, read through that we're about to go through is to care about the Greyjoys more than I have before. Because I just ever, haven't ever been as excited about them as you guys are. So my goal well, is to get, now? get more hype. Um, just after this chapter, how does it feel? I, uh, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think that I can get hype about the Greyjoys, but I'm not there yet. Is what I'm trying to say. That's my goal. So ask so, me in like a couple months how I feel so about what, them. What about it about them is not doing it for you exactly? I just feel like... They've been fairly removed from what we've been talking about, you know, in the first three books. Not removed, but we haven't spent time yet in in the Iron Islands, really. And so by the time I get to this part in the series, I am less interested in what they're doing. And I care more about what's happening in Westeros. But So are we right. talking about like the like you value your plot lines based on proximity of like either the central Stark? politics like, yes. or or i was gonna say end game but okay if it's just sansa then that's no. easy well is it is it like seats of power hannah because i geographically speaking let's all open our imaginary maps the iron islands are far removed from any sort of place of interest that would be a a foothold that would allow you to sort of gain a strategic piece of power with all these warring uh i don't want to say only kings because there's daenerys as well all these warring factions at that, that probably a better way of explaining it and not jumping too far ahead but there's there's no way to know at this point whether or not the Greyjoy family will have a active role to play in the end game uh, or or what their role is going to be in the final battle if we want to call it that not to you know Let's hope Take that there's away from C.S. Lewis but you know it just <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just thinking that 
this is this is one of the families, right, uh, of Westeros that we've come to know. Yeah. And I think that they wouldn't have been included uh, in in this book the way that they are. The point of views that we get from the number of Greyjoys that 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 we get them from, if they weren't integral to what is going to happen on one of the fronts of of the wars to come. Right. So I should start paying attention. There's a lot of coastline. Yeah. A lot of coastline. I did like hearing about Balin Greyjoy from Aaron's perspective, though, because he's this little brother who totally idolizes this guy. Mm. Uh, and seeing him in a way we maybe haven't seen him before was kind of cool. And all the, I mean, the insane stuff he did as a young man. Nine sons had been born from the loins of Kellen Greyjoy, but only four had lived to manhood. That was the way of this cold world, where men fished the sea and dug in the ground and died, whilst women brought forth short-lived children from beds of blood and pain. Aaron had been the last and least of the four Krakens, Balon the eldest and the boldest, a fierce and fearless boy who lived only to restore the ironborn to their ancient glory. At ten, he scaled the flint cliffs to the blind lord's haunted tower. At 13, he could run a longship's oars and dance the finger dance as well as Amy Mann in the Isles. At 15, he had sailed with Damder Cleft Jaw to the Stepstones and spent a summer reading. He slew his first man there and took his first two salt wives. At 17, Balin captained his own ship. He was all that an elder brother ought to be. Better to be scorned by Balon the Brave than beloved of Euron Crozai. And if Aiden of Grief had turned Balon bitter with the years, they had also made him more determined than any man alive. He was born a lord's son and died a king, murdered by a jealous god, Aaron thought, and now the storm is coming, a storm such as these isles has never known. Yeah, this guy was intense. <laughs> yeah, we get a, a retroactive flood of respect for Balon Greyjoy, the father of the same Theon that we know. Uh-huh. Yeah. If only Theon had remained in the Iron Islands, right? How do they describe? He describes Theon as barely being a Greyjoy or something like that. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what he says, but Balon was reporting to Aaron in the past. Aaron was thinking back, and he was he basically said that he'd spent too long with the wolves, and he had softened to a, a level that is beyond repair, and that hopefully he dies. Which is funny to think about, you know, being in the north with. It doesn't seem like being such a soft place to be, but yeah, I know exactly. the Iron <laughs> Islands. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I but right. I feel like we've had our perspective skewed for some time. Just the way that they think about this world. Beds of blood and pain. Yeah. And that drowning it's... and coming back and fighting for your breath is the way life is. So it's good that this is happening. You might as well and get callous that, to what's though, to come. Not only did Balin say that Theon had been made weak, but he, he was hoping that... Basically, he would die so Asha could take his place. It was, yeah. you know, it, when the time came, and it's it's very clear reading through this chapter that Balin wanted Asha after he passed on mm-hmm. to take the Sea Stone chair, and that was before Balin got in a strong contest with the God of Storms, the Storm God, who I guess was angry that he had reclaimed the Sea Stone chair with the Drowned God. This this ever going war between these two deities um this man was a lightning rod for i guess through the mind of aaron and you know it's kind of hard to talk about this stuff right because we were talking about the drowning and etc and we were kind of laughing at the fact that this is rudimentary 
science and this is how stuff works and that it can be a lot right. of this sort of religious stuff can be explained away but we got to remember that this is a song of ice and fire and there are shadow babies and there are whites and the list goes on and on and on maybe maybe that he was killed by the storm god maybe it was time for him to be cast off of a cliff yeah could, could it not be that he was plucked from the sky by the storm god could it not be that he has mermaids attending to his every whim and desire now in in the in the drowned murky halls of the afterlife it just seems crazy to me that a man as fierce and powerful as balon Greyjoy just like fell to his death have you seen right? those bridges yeah. though <laughs> they are yeah like that's that's really the the mark of i think this this area is that even a king can trip and fall like it, it may sound like an undignified death but i don't think that is how aaron sees it are we sure that this wasn't a plot i think it probably was but the fact that they're not questioning it uh it does it doesn't seem to be there's there's nothing suspicious about this in a way this is just and i think that goes to illustrate or underscore just how harsh this world is i mean you can uh, a, r- a rope slackens in a storm and of course aaron is quick to tie it to the storm god but i mean it just that's just just how treacherous it is to even exist walking outside uh, where these people live. I think we're meant to uh, have a level of suspicion, though, as it relates to Euron Greyjoy and the fact that he's already sitting the sea stone chair. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he's and... there like the next day. Right. right. That's what exactly. I was thinking when I read it. I he was got like, the memo. Well, and in his internal monologue, uh, Aaron, it, it, you know, he says, the crow's eye is half a world away. Balin sent him off two years ago and swore that it would be his life if he returned. So... I, I I do think that we're meant to believe that there's something afoul here. We can go back to what the ghost of High Heart said. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in a storm of swords, and the the line that we you know later tied directly to Balin Greyjoy's death when we found out towards the end of the book that he had died. So Euron probably fits that description pretty well and and we'll have to see if if he had a hand in the death of his brother mm. in order to try and and claim the sea stone chair well it's what joe schaefer wrote this in as his own uh via oh. email so i'll just go ahead and read that he says my own for the prophet goes to the ghost of high heart and he quotes what the ghost of high heart says i dreamed of a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung on his shoulder perched a drowned crow with a seaweed hanging from its wings so own for predicting the return of the crow's eye and the death of Balon. Wait, why doesn't he have Good a job, face? Joe. I wonder. Hmm. Because he's oh. a faceless assassin. Shit. Hired by Euron Greyjoy. Hmm. He's actually no. a diet Pepsi twist. What? <laughs> no. Great. Zip. Okay. All right, so it's check Britney this out. Spears. It says that he's waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. So it could have been a faceless man just waiting to push Balon Greyjoy off of the bridge. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, but on his shoulder was a crow. Well, the crow's eye. My assumption was that Euron hired this individual to kill Balon. But the thing is, Euron, I mean, if if Aaron had mm. his way, Euron would not be the king, even though Euron's already there sitting on the chair. Um, this is a quote from the book. Euron is elder, the priest said, but Victorian is more godly. <laughs> and this is... This is a choice, and I think it's it's I think it's this choice that essentially leads Aaron to declare the whole thing a farce. Can I say something though? When I when I was reading this chapter, it 
it so much reminded me of when Robert died and there was a power struggle between Stannis and Renly. Yeah. Does does Joffrey get the throne by right? You know, when they're talking about the fact that Asha would be technically the rightful heir uh, to take the Seastone chair. Uh, it, may, it, it was just very reminiscent of everything that went on back in King's Landing. Yeah, it's like even a place like this, they have to deal with the politics. Like, who has the city watch? Who has the men there? And it mm-hmm. just so happens that it was Crozai. Euron was the one that took the Seastone chair. He brought with him the silence. Yeah. Yep. Different city, same problems. Exactly. And you have, like, Balin's wishes for Asha, but but many of the Iron Men. I mean, that that's sort of perhaps the toughest sell of them all to the Ironborn, who've never been ruled by women. It's even said, oh, their battles are in the birthing room, and it's so ignorant and anti-feminist there. But, but that's sort of where they live. That's what they all inhabit. But then having to suggest that even Euron, who is older, wouldn't or shouldn't be king um, because he's not godly, and you can't have somebody who's not as worshipful uh, ruling these Ironborn. You know, that's Aaron's two cents. And then the idea that they're going to have a king's moot to decide, and it's not even just between these candidates that there could be other candidates. Like, it just, it, now it's all up in the air. Yeah, there's a lot of factors at play here. Mm-hmm. When Aaron takes, I don't want to say the stage, he stands atop of a boulder, I think, <laughs> and starts to, to shout and to gather the masses around this idea of who will be chosen next to be our king. They shout for him at first. Mm-hmm. People who are there to stick their hands up and grab it are the ones that are going to be, uh, I guess, considered for the role. Or who, You know what I mean? Like they all, They're all just sort of staking and making their own claims. And the fact that, that Euron has taken the Seastone chair, his brother can still sort of subvert that and make an entire new circumstance come up by by doing this, by shouting for the king's move, by feeling it inside of his bones and knowing that after all this time... And there, there's not being into that, into this situation, could potentially walk Theon uh, at this point, too, who is the king's, or the former king's eldest son. Everybody has sort of a claim in their own way. It, it's very reminiscent, as Micah said, of the battle for the king to succeed Robert. Right. And it, it, it's it's getting to know, at least through one family members perspective all of the the key relatives that are going to play a role uh in what is to come in this king's moot uh but it's almost like now you're in a situation where you need to rally bannermen to your cause to vote on your behalf right Mm that this is what is going to need to happen in order for euron or victorian or asha to uh sit the sea stone chair and in some ways, it, it it reminded me of of them selecting the Lord Commander, um, but they're going to have to go through a similar process to decide who they want to rule over them uh, moving forward. And there's there's going to be a lot of uh, family politics that's going to play into it. I'm excited, and it's very wise of him to ride to a place like Pebbleton that has the I don't want to say simple folk. He describes them as simple folk. These thousands of 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 fisher folk that populate the area. So he was able to sort of, you know, he has a place with these people because I think that the, isn't it the more, the more baser your station and let's just say this story, the more likely you are to be connected to this strong belief in your religion to kind of like use it as a crutch against like what's going on in the world. And he goes to the right place and he does the right things. He, even if he believes it or not, the fact that he was so ceremonious in all of this and even on his own the night before, 
going out into mm-hmm. the water and and letting it wash over him and getting neck deep and you know what I mean like all, everything that he's doing us as a reader we we believe that he really believes in what he's saying and thinking that he believes in this religion so all laughery aside if this is the kind of story that a drowned god exists and a, the halls underneath the, the, the ocean like if Balon Greyjoy is really there hanging out with mermaids fine whether it's not real or real I think we'll hopefully find out before all this is over. Maybe we won't, but we know that things like Children of the Forest exist, and so and the the walls that hinder the world. And I just, I know, kind of randomly, but you guys get what I'm saying, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. where where are we in this? Like he believes what he's doing, and we believe him. Yeah. The idea of a king's moot is it only politics for him, or do you believe that he truly believes in it? It's it's hard to say because ultimately you do get the scene where he walks into the ocean and then has that revelation. Oh, bones, bones, bones. I need to do a king's mood. There isn't quite a burning bush quality to it. You know, it's kind of something that he meditates on uh, with his intimate relationship with the sea uh, and, and comes to this. It's like it's nearly impossible to distinguish it from being either genuinely a religious experience or just a very egocentric man who's buying into his own BS and decides that this is what needs to be done. Because ultimately, who does a king's moot benefit? Does it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily help out. Uh, He could be going around saying, nope, Asha should be the one, Asha should do it, but he doesn't think Asha should do it despite Balin's wishes. So like a king's moot actually gets him out of having to be controlled by someone he doesn't want to see on the throne as much as it might enable whoever he wants to see actually rule the Ironborn. It's an election versus being chosen. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a fuck shit up move, and it's impossible in the first chapter to really guess if he's truly altruistic. Right. I absolutely believe that he believes in it. Whether or not that that's going to make him super biased or blinded in a certain way, you know, I, I guess we'll have to find out but i think he absolutely believes in yeah i, I think he definitely believes in it uh, particularly after uh what happened uh you know in, in the battle against stannis and you know that he survived and even though he was taken captive after the fact you know he does believe strongly and he is a very pious man i mean think about how the chapter opens he's drowning other people bringing them back to life you're resurrecting them in a way and and he's he's you know, true only to the drowned god, and and you know, it, it, to me, it's even more evidence when he is in, um, the the hall, uh, with Gorold, good brother, and his maester, and and the maester, exactly. He he does not believe anything about what the maesters are able to do. He doesn't even want the maester in the same room as him. Uh, and I, there's there's history there with what happened to his brother and, and the fact that the maester tried to heal his brother. And, and so uh, I think he's he's become a man who trusts only in the drowned god and to, to give him guidance and to tell him what to do and to heal and to do things like that. He, he really doesn't have much of a, of, of a belief for the maesters of Old Town and, and what they represent. And I think that's just even more evidence of of who he has become now and what this all means for, you know, how he's going to act once the king's mood takes place and who he may side with. It's hard to say because, uh, you know, clearly he doesn't think, as has already been mentioned, that Asha should be the one to sit the sea stone chair, even though that's what Balin wanted. Um, you know, he's he's saying to himself constantly towards the end of this chapter, it has to be Victorian, it has to be Victorian. Um, 
but Victorian's the younger brother and and he is dutiful and and he has been but yet there's also this situation about a woman and well I'm going to find out more about that as the story goes along but is that situation going to be enough to to make Victorian rebel against Euron and and want to take the chair for himself it's just a lot of family politics well they're all rebels against King Stannis <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, just add them to the list and just... the near be destroyed <laughs> A king's moot it will be. But before we go to Oldwick, we must go to Dorne. To, to Dorne. Dorn. <laughs> We've been to Dorne before. The beautiful water gardens. Do you guys remember? I do. Uh, I'm trying to forget, but I do. It was a joyous, joyous occasion. And now I know why Micah was so fond of the guardsman with his long ash staff from the television show The Captain of Guards from the perspective <laughs> of one Areohota. Areohota. I got to say... I thought he was a little boring. Oh, come on. I mean, all right, <laughs> sorry. Okay, I I just I I felt like I didn't understand why this chapter was from his perspective specifically. Cuz I just felt like I understand that it gave us a great overview as we're being introduced to Dorne in the books and we got to kind of see it from somebody's perspective who maybe isn't right on the inside or who is on the inside but you know what I'm trying to say, maybe Right. I just felt like he was kind of boring. This is the perfect perspective to open on Dorne, I feel. I will defend this um, because like, even without knowing uh, all of where this is going, I I think it, it did very interesting things with... Uh, George always does those... Has You have these characters who show up in these points of view, um, but you don't get those points of view. And Prince Duran is that for, for this. Like, the arc with Prince Duran in this chapter is one of the most titillating, like it hooked me in. I read this and then I read the next 12 chapters the same night because of Duran and how it made me feel. But wouldn't like, you rather been in Duran's head? No, 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 no. Because it that would ruin it, right? It's a mystery. Like seeing this guy who's devoted to this prince, this, this weak prince who's failing, his, his health is failing him and he's got to be carried around and, or wheeled around, you know, seeing sort of the perspective of a man who cares for this man who mm -hmm. is in charge of Dorne but is about to have Dorne rest rested from his grasp is really fascinating it's like it's once removed I can get how it might be more boring to some than being in Duran's head but ultimately you get the conversation and having Arya being able to listen in to all of his meetings with the closest people you actually get I think you get more than you would with any other one person um, he's a fly on the wall who actually just happens to have a really cool sword that he sleeps with. <laughs> and and so. through him, we also got to learn of his homeland in Norvos, and we got to exactly. feel the kind of person. And so again, in the first few chapters of this of this new volume, we're expanding our universe. Not that that, I don't know if it will come into uh, integral play later on, but it, it fleshed out the person that is fleshing out these other people. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and I think that's extremely valuable uh, at the beginning of a book, for for one, but also because George is beginning to do something different with this book you know mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of leaving certain things uh behind temporarily um even though we get a lot of king's landing in this book but you know like it's it's still he's trying to do new things um but no i ate it up i think this chapter is great i'll, I'll give you that what it did for me too was that the the primary sand snakes right that we come to know <laughs> in the television show it, yeah. that that are in this chapter they all have very different motivations in terms of how they want to go about avenging their father's death. It's not 
the show kind of combined it all together yeah. and and I know we did get a lot of bones and a lot of response and, and and how much different people's reactions were going back and reading this chapter versus what they saw on the show and we, we talked about it um, last season with, with with how things were portrayed in particular it wasn't you know really the way that we had anticipated uh, but you know certain things need to be crafted certain ways for the purpose of the television show but here you got a much uh, better insight into the characters of uh, and 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 sort of the personalities of these individuals and and or at least how somebody like Ariel Hota has come to know them over the years mm-hmm. and i just thought you know as you're going through and you're learning their motivations and and what it is that they want to do uh it's just uh it, it just flowed a lot better yeah uh, i'll leave it i'll leave it at that well ad- adaptation is tricky I mean, we we've grown to be very fond of the job david and dan and the entire team are doing with adapting this incredibly intricate book series to a television show that millions and millions of people from the casual viewer of fantasy to someone who has no idea what they're watching it just seems cool and they know Jon snow died to craft that thing <laughs> to make it good mm-hmm. and i think it's got to be a bit daunting right as the show grows in size to approach something i don't want to say just like the dornish storyline but there's you know the characters ramp up and i don't i'm not sure if 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 it was anticipated that oberon martell was going to explode like oberon martell did and so i don't know i just hope that we learn from things and that the move forward into things like the great joys is taken mm-hmm. with less of a sort of commercial edge and more of the gritty, hardened edge that so much of the TV show already has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't you feel, uh, maybe better is not the right choice of words, but just going through and, and you know, you had Obara who you know just wants all-out war, and then you had Nymeria who wants the Lannisters dead to pay for what happened to Elia and Oberyn. Uh, and mm-hmm. Elia's children, and then you have Tyene, who wants to go way more the political route, and and really keep Marcella captive by marrying her to Tristane. And so, I, I just you know to to see the different varying perspectives of these three sisters to try and and get back at the Lannisters and the Mountain for what has happened to their family over the years. If you, it gives you the feels more, right? Yeah, you get you get oh, to 100%. know them. Yeah, and and you don't. Y- y- All right, I'm I'm just I'm gonna leave the show by itself, and we can talk <laughs> well, about the no, chat. No, no, I mean, look, I have, I have somebody to add to that. Look, here's here's a quote from the book. Tyene, this is from Nim, uh, Nymeria. Tyene is so sweet and gentle that no man will suspect her. Obara would make Old Town our father's funeral pyre, but I am not so greedy. Four lives will suffice for me, and she goes to list. And I'm just thinking the the most. This may be way harsh on the show, but like the most that the show could say for making these women different, these characters yeah. different, is that they cast yeah. three different women in the role, <laughs> in each yeah. role. Yeah. They cast a yeah. different person for each role. Yeah. That's the distinction. That's how different they are in the show. In the book, yeah. the nuance is so much more lively and so much more important. And I mean, granted, I, I think in our uh, very fair analysis of season five, I think we all felt that there was probably more coming with Dorne, and there's always going to be room for improvement in the future. Um, but in the meantime, yes, these women are fascinating, and I want to know more about them. 
absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there, the entire Dornish storyline that we're going to eventually get to does does great to build on this side of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's very interesting. And this is only the beginning of it. We get to learn of the Prince of Dorne directly from his honorable and loyal guard. And we get to see directly how the daughters, the offspring of the Red Viper, who has most recently passed in a a brutal fashion, uh, how they interact with him and how they make him feel from a neutral perspective, standing only feet away. And like you said, Eric, that sort of breeds into the mystery later on in the chapter when eventually reaching Sunspear, he has them imprisoned, all of them. Prince Duran is, is another casualty of the show. I'm so glad they cast such a good actor in his role, and I want to see that in the future. But Prince Duran, reading this chapter, at first you think, um, or at least I thought, oh, you know, he's he's a pacifist. He doesn't want to wage war. He's got lots of bloodthirsty people all around him. Then I thought, oh, he's wise. And when he imprisoned the Sand Snakes, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's that's actually incredibly intelligent. Um, you know, he's it fits with his motives to not cause an all-out war, but it's going to cost him some favor points and the, the count of the people. It's going to, you know, ruffle some feathers. He's not afraid to be bold when it's necessary. And so I'm admiring the man more and more and more until the final line of the chapter, which I'm just getting a little ahead of ourselves, but the final line when he says he's doing it because he's such a loyal friend to Tywin <laughs> yeah. Lannister. Yeah. Who is responsible yeah. for Prince Doran's, wait a minute, is he just placating the daughters? What the hell is this all about? Yeah. It's the perfect shock trick ending that you just hope for in any given chapter. But like, I don't know, after having read this long chapter about how this prince is struggling, I don't know a damn thing about it. This is Doran. This is the southern part of Westeros. This is the prince. He's being carried to Sunspear after staying in the Water Gardens for two years now. Things are moving, and it looks like plans are in motion. People are ready in the bone way. Men are men are ready to raise their spears. Yeah, you know what I mean. We don't we don't learn that until now, but things are moving. And it's hard to know by the end of the chapter uh, with Prince Duran. Is he just looking to avoid all out war at this point and not get his family into a situation that could cost more lives? And you you have to weigh that against the fact that as as Zach just mentioned, there's there's a point early on in the chapter where Obara says thousands are crossing the sands afoot to climb the bone way so they may help Alaria bring my father home. The seps are packed to bursting and the red priests have lit their temple fires. In the pillow houses, women are coupling with every man who comes to them and refusing any coin. In Sunspear, on the broken arm, along the green blood, in the mountains, out in the deep sand, everywhere, everywhere, women tear their hair and men cry out in rage. The same question is heard on every tongue. What will Doran do? BRB, he's sleeping with Tywin. <laughs> and he doesn't know Tywin's <laughs> dead yet. That's the great part yeah. of it. That. that is also yeah. a very cool mechanic. That is also very, very cool. But it's the same at the wall. It's the same north of the wall. When they're t- it, it, it's that's the problem. News doesn't travel fast enough, almost uh, here. And you wonder how just how differently this all would be if they just knew what had already happened. It's so difficult to just see the reaction that Dorn is having to having lost Prince Oberyn. Uh, the passage I just read when they do finally get to Sunspear. Uh, you know, how Duran is treated upon his arrival. He knows that he's not doing too well in the uh, approval ratings category right now. (laughs) All he does 
really seemed to want to do is sit in the water gardens and watch the children and kind of live out his last days. Uh, but that could also be a, a mask for something else. We we don't really know. And, and I think that's what's so great about being inside Ariel Hota's mind is that we don't really know what's going on inside of the mind of Prince Duran. Despite all that we see in the meetings with the Sand Snakes and others in this chapter, you know, wouldn't it be I'm not so much better if we off. did? No. no. He's double-crossing <laughs> I mean, everybody, or is he? Right. I think that's the best part is is we're, we're removed from it, so we don't know really what it what he's going to do. I think it's like Jamie Lannister. You know, yeah. we weren't in his mind for a while. Then eventually we were. It's that slow burn. We've only just met Doran Martell. Maybe we'll just, you know, okay. it's... I'll slow down. I don't know. I think... No, I, I think mean, you're right, though. With Jamie, wasn't it essential? Like, if we were to love him, we needed to be inside his head. Do you think that's true? I think so, especially after what he's done. Because mm-hmm. I mean, his, his I mean, it's inter- hard not to love the guy. Is but... some of the best that a song of ice and fire has to offer. With Duran, it may be different. You know, we may never get the inside of his head, but I, I think I still like him. I just think he's he's slow playing this thing because you have to remember this is his brother, and and I know many times in this chapter he says. You know, he he dro- he died in trial by combat, which you know technically that's true. Is that's not the murder. Thing that's very true. Bothering me about all of this and and Ilaria too. But let's also remember this is his family. I just don't. I I think there's more to this. I just I think there's more. What's bothering you, Hannah? I'm bothered by that everybody is so intense on this need for revenge, and is so like bloodthirsty about this. And I understand that. You know, Oberyn died and it sucks. And, you know, Ilari, all of this kind of, it's been a lot building up. But he volunteered himself to do this. And he got out of the mountain what he wanted out of the mountain, which was to say, not that he was sorry, but to admit what he had done. At so, least that news traveled. I just feel like maybe I'm just like grumpy today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I felt I just, the same way when we were when we were watching it in season five. I was just kind of like, what's with all this? It's I such mean, an intense underst- reaction. Yeah, I mean, I understand why everyone is upset, but you add what happened 17 years ago on top of this, and you add in that the the kingdom is in this disjointed, not quite yet stable, and they, they have another king after just losing another king. It's just all of it is sort of a breeding ground. Like, if, if there's any time to strike, if there's any time to get mad about something happening, it it's would be now. now. And it just so happened that the best man in Dorm was taken from them. I know, but it was taken from them like it was his own fault. Like it was nobody coerced him into, you know, this trial by right. combat. But Absolutely. I mean, so I understand, you know, the logic behind why everybody is upset and intense. But at the, on the other hand, I'm just kind of like, can we just like slow down and maybe do this more rationally? Yeah, you you can just imagine like somebody like if the if the armies of Dorne march to King's Landing once they get there, and if. Uh, the things hadn't happened with Tyrion that did, but and it hadn't been Tyrion in the trial to begin with. But he, you just see him like meeting on the embankment, going, you know, he like killed himself, right? He was a little too cocky. He did this. Like, can you can you guys just turn around? Because it was totally like it was kind he of he could fair have fight. won. It was it was he kind did, of a yeah. fair fight. He should have won. I was as upset as anybody else to see him die. Couldn't <laughs> you guys just you know turn around? Because I feel like certain information isn't coming across or the reality. Like nobody has just driven home that point. I don't think that it really they don't have a leg to stand on being upset about Oberyn's death. He did his family true. He did his he did the right thing by everybody. It's just that his own pride 
was his undoing. Yeah, and I think that you're right, Eric, what you were saying about like just the way that news travels and time passes, you know, has a big factor in this. But I think that Prince Dorian agrees with all of this. And I think that's why he is patient as he is in this mm-hmm. chapter. Can you imagine being having to be in charge of the Sand Snake sisters? Like how incredibly powerful they are and to have to like rally them. So of course he's going to put them in <laughs> <Yeah>. jail. <laughs> Let me just read this passage from the book. This is while they're traveling, uh, I think, what is it? How many leagues? Well, they're traveling the leagues between the Water Gardens and the Seat of the Martell Sunspear. Halfway there, the second sand snake caught them. This is as they're traveling. (laughs) She appeared suddenly upon a dune mounted on a golden sand steed with a mane like fine white silk. Even a horse, the Lady Nem looked graceful, dressed all in shimmering lilac robes and a great silk cape of cream and copper that lifted at every gust of wind, and made her look as if she might take flight. Nymeria San was five and twenty, and slender as a willow. Her straight black hair worn in a long braid bound up with red gold wire made a widow's peak above her dark eyes, just as her father's had. With her high cheekbones, full lips, and milk pale skin, she had all the beauty that her elder sister lacked, but Obera's mother had been, a old, had been an old-town whore, whilst Nem was born in the noblest blood of old Valentis. A dozen mounted spearmen tailed her, their round shield gleaming in the sun. They followed her down the dune. So Prince Doran is dealing with his his affliction, his absolutely uh, disgusting gout. <laughs> Traveling to Sunspear after all this time, and Hannah, you're talking about he has to keep these women in check. He has to keep what's happening, this sort of rebellion rising up maybe amidst his plans in check. And he looks... And sees her shining on top of a sand dune. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she rides down with all of her men. And he can't even walk. He can't walk. I mean, that's why you get the conversation with him and Arya. How loyal are your men, Captain? I mean, that's he needs to know. He's taking stock. He is planning things, but he needs there to, to be a shrivel of loyal followers. I think he has that in Arya Hota. That's, that's what I... That's what I think. He does have a tremendous amount um, on his plate in terms of just dealing with the Sand Snakes because we just briefly talked about Nymeria, but the way that it's described in the book, halfway there, the second Sand Snake caught them. Like, you know, it's almost like he's anticipating the arrival of all of these women, all of these daughters of Oberyn Martell, uh, to to confront him. And what really worried me, though, is that when he's having this conversation with Nymeria, you get the real sense that you know, each is more increasingly dangerous than the next, even though it's almost like you're going from somebody who, in Obara who wants true physical confrontation to somebody in Tyene who wants more of the political approach. But it almost seems like it gets worse and worse. Uh, Nymeria says, Obara would make Old Town our father's funeral pyre, but I am not so greedy. Four lives will suffice for me. Lord Tywin's golden twins, Jamie and Cersei, mm-hmm. as payment for Elia's children. The old lion, Tywin, for Elia herself. And last of all, the little king, for my father, uh, Tommen. And and so really, Marcella and Tyrion are the only ones who who get out of this uh, with without any sort of uh, real problem, right? I mean, good for them. Retribution. Yeah, Marcella's pretty. Yeah, Marcella's getting the best end of the deal with this. Only royal blood can wash out my father's murder. And it's like 
furthermore, though, these these girls, these daughters, these sand snakes are inciting to riot the entire countryside. Like the arrival in Sunspear in particular is just who shouts back when your when your king is on his carriage into the city? Like make way for the Prince of Dorne. The prince is dead. A woman shrilled behind him. <laughs> to spears, a man followed from the balcony. Like think about Joffrey and and when when he was coming back through serious. the city. Yep. Uh, and uh, you know that was the the scene where the hound had to save Sansa. Uh, I don't think it's as to the level of of and and even when Cersei when she had to do her her walk of of repentance uh you know the the people don't always love the uh the king or the prince or the queen and it's made very apparent uh we saw it in King's Landing we're seeing it here again in Dorne well and if the Dornish uh royalty or the Dornish in people in charge upper class are a little bit more uh, flexible with their practices, a lot more outgoing. That's reflected down to the common people as well, who are uh, equally feisty, I feel, anyway. And they're just, you know, outwardly shouting what they want. To mm-hmm. Spears, vengeance for the Viper. To war, well, I'm with war, them. To the Spears. All right. Well, and we could see how you. quickly this could really spiral out of control if the Snansanks are just among them, kind of stirring the pot even more than it already has been. So Yeah. Well, they want they want to fight, and they want some retribution. They know that Prince Oberyn waited seventeen years for his, and like it is said, they're not going to wait seventeen years for theirs. So Prince Doran is in a very interesting situation because he's already dealing with enough of the politics coming down from what just happened in King's Landing. Not to mention that there's been a rebellion for a long time. There was a War of the Five Kings. A lot of a lot of things are happening, but also right now uh, because of what happened. Dorne's place is in a state of flux because some of their, we could just call them chieftains, some chieftains, some of their most known officials are, you know, are, are basically moving a lot of the, the sentiment in the countryside to a different conclusion other than what the prince, the person who is ruling, I mean, clearly just from this chapter, we couldn't know before, but is, uh, is pushing forward. So. There's strife going on here, and I can't help but to feel like this is a an enclosed space, right? In this chapter, it kind of feels like it's apart from the rest of the realm. But then you you have to remind yourself and zoom out a little bit. Like this is all happening while the strife in King's Landing is happening. This is all happening while the things that are happening at the Wall. This is all happening while Daenerys is out east. This is all happening while the Greyjoys are picking a new king. You're right. It is it is a small room in the larger kingdom or small com- smaller compartment of the larger kingdom. But I also feel in a way. Doran himself is in a smaller room. He's kind because he he himself is kind of withdrawn due to gout, right? So he is kept in this carriage. He's kept in under the protection and close care because he's a prince, but also because he is interested in surviving uh, his his ailment. You know, like seeing the world uh, not through his eyes, but his eyes at Jason. Let's just say, and how he conducts himself and is careful. It says. Um, the prince smiled wan- wanely and cupped his daughter's cheek with a reddened, swollen hand. Um, you know, it's it's sad. It's tragic almost uh, seeing this man operate, take meetings with his children, and but ultimately it's not stopping him from doing what needs to be done. But it's another lens with through which to see the struggle and the strife that he himself is going through. It's just clear that Prince Doran has a lot uh, that he has to deal with now and. Mm-hmm. You know, when he arrives, uh, as was mentioned, uh, he meets 
uh, his daughter, uh, Ariane Martel, and we get to see Marcella for the first time in a long time, uh, along with Sir Eris O'Cart, uh, the Kingsguard member who was sent uh, to protect her uh, in Dorne. And uh, there was actually a mention earlier in the chapter by Ario Hota that uh, he had a feeling <laughs> that at some point in the future he was going to have to do battle with Sir Eris O'Cart, uh, which I don't know if those uh, people from uh, Norbos are... Uh, somewhat uh capable of foreseeing the future crying uh found that to be uh interesting upon rereading what his mind directly goes there he sees in eris uh, i guess a formidable opponent someone that is the most like him out of anyone else then we don't actually like technically meet meet him in this chapter they this we kind of just move through these people and we'll spend more time with these folks later, but um, I think he sees in Eris the same kind of discipline, the same sort of like lifelong dedication to his craft, if you could call it that, and uh, just a lot of respect there. Yeah, definitely. And and going back to seeing this chapter through his eyes, so important uh, because of things that he picks up on, and that being one of them, but also even when uh, Prince Duran is meeting with uh, Tyene uh, and he sees uh, Tyene for the first time uh, in in the chapter, and, and he notes that all of Prince Oberyn's daughters have his viper eyes. The color does not matter. You know, I don't think that's necessarily something that you would get if this was from the perspective of Prince Duran. Um, and, and I think the way the chapter was really laid out was really an assessment for Prince Duran to get an idea of what exactly it is that his daughters, uh, that I should say Oberyn's daughters, were going to look to do. How were they going to respond to what has now happened? And he's able to get that from Obara, from Nymeria, from uh, Tyene. And that's why he makes the decision. And he probably went into this at the beginning uh, knowing, okay, based on the responses that I get, I'm going to have to do what I have to do, and that is to lock them all up because they are going to potentially fuck up whatever plans i have in place it's it's so easy for him to gain the get the confidence of oberon's daughters because he's just it's because he's known as this uh man of inaction right it's been 17 years and nothing's been properly done like the act of locking them up like there's there's no question that they confide in him what their plans are how they're feeling their true intentions of stirring shit up they're they're it's so easy for him to get their confidence and he turns it back on them by having them imprisoned. It's like it's a really cool dick move. <laughs> Their plans, while being so different, beg the same conclusion, which is rebellion. Yeah. Are you yeah, Are you absolutely. guys not in- intrigued by Tyane's plan though with Marcella? I'm kind of into it. I'm into it. It's it's a it's a great plan. It's a it's a wonderful plan because who's to say that you know Marcella as the elder wouldn't take the throne after Joffrey. I'm uh, I'm I'm a Tommen sympathist. I think you guys know this about me from the show. Like like I just don't want the brother and the sister to fight. That's all. I don't. Think. Yeah, but just judging by history in Westeros, Westerosian history, what better kingdom to lead this rebellion uh, than Dorne? Oh, no better. No no better kingdom. It's it's got to be Dorne all the way. I think the feminist revolution is a coming, and and Dorne's bringing it. And also from Tyene, you get uh, confirmation that Oberyn used poison. Uh, when fighting the mountain, she calls it tickling, but uh, <laughs> the mountain, uh, perfect. at least from what we're reading here, it should not be expected to 
survive make it, yeah. for much longer. Not unless Mr. Kyburn has a say in the matter, right? That's right. He's like, shh, French. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, quiet down. I also think this chapter, Eric, you, you said it kind of throws you through a loop at the end, but I also want to know who is Sorella and what's the game she's playing? Ah. Yeah, that, it came mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Yep. Yep. I know a lot of you are itching your, your Twitter fingers and your email and your Facebook, et cetera, fingers are itching to write us in right now. You can just email about that one, right, Micah? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, just send us an email. What's Sorella up to? What game is Sorella playing? We all know that Lord Tywin will not be hearing the howling coming from Dorne anytime soon. R.I.P. Oh. So uh, should we talk about our, our owns now? While all of Dorne is howling. Mm-hmm. Dorne weeps and our podcast owns. <laughs> I'm going to give my own to in the uh, Prophet chapter. Yeah, as we can't say in the John chapter now for these, we have to call them proper chapter titles. The Prophet. That's right. The Prophet. The prophet. Uh, I am giving it to the longship named Golden Storm, which was named after the ability of one Aaron Greyjoy and his ability to piss longer than anybody <laughs> yes. else. Can you explain? Can that, what just that be is? everyone's I don't own? I think I caught that. Yeah, it's definitely first off. It's also my own, Micah. Yeah, it's everyone's. <laughs> own. It's absolutely my own. We're done. Uh, we should bless the audience with this quote, Micah. Bless them. Bless them with salt. The drowned god gives every man a gift. Even him, no man could piss longer or farther than Aaron Greyjoy, as he proved at every feast. <laughs> Once he bet his new longship against a herd of goats that he could quench a hearth fire with no more than his cock. Aaron feasted on goat for a year and named the longship Golden Storm. He knows what he's good at, and he it's just ballsy. works with it. He, he once bet against a herd of goats that he could quench a hearth fire. With, I mean, that's a hearth fire, guys. It's not like a campfire. Yeah. It's massive. Eric, are you joining in here, or do you have another own? Well, it's to a Greyjoy, so we might as well just say, yeah, sure, Golden Storm. Greyjoy is no, what is your own. what is your own? What is your own? It's just to a Greyjoy? People, have, listen, the people want to know. Why do you think they listen, Eric? I just have it to the line. and Oh, I guess this is a point of view character's line. Uh, open yes. your mouth and drink deep of God's blessing. I think there, <laughs> there's no crueler, harsher way to perfectly epitomize what this what these people are all about um so that was my own to the scripture to the to the i'm sure that's a line that he says uh whenever he's drowning people all right uh how about owns for the captain of the guards my own goes to obara for when she says he's talking about um Dorian is talking about, you know, looking at the kids, playing in the pool, and she says, it does not please me. I'd get more pleasure from driving my spear into Lord Tywin's belly. I'll make him sing the reins of Castamere as I pull his bowels out and look for gold. Uh, and we already know that there would be none there. In the end, Tywin Lannister did not ship gold, yeah. That that's that joke keeps on giving. I bet a herd of goats that there are no, there's no gold in his bowels. <laughs> that is my favorite running joke of the series. So I'm going to give my own to Maester Calliot, Calliot, to mm. that Maester, and also to the Maester from the Iron Islands, also just to Maesters in general. After following the prologue to Be All Prologues in our Feast with Dragons, we learned more of the Maesters, not that we didn't know of them in the past, but I can't help but to think of Grima Wormtongue as he's whispering in the... Uh, Prince Doran's ear, my my prince, do your legs hurt? And he said, I fetched a drop for the pain. They're strategically placing themselves so well in this story. And our chapters are doing nothing but 
driving that point in and in and in, and Aaron is a bit suspect. Not quite, and I think maybe <laughs> I'm I'm a bit too suspect, but. Um, there's a maester here, there's a maester there, and George does well to paint that image very vividly. I'm just curious. I'm very curious. It's a shame the maesters aren't like the nurses in Pokemon, Nurse Joy. <laughs> Am I, uh, I mean, yeah. where they all look the same in every in every city. Like they're sisters or they're all clo- twins or clones or something. Did anyone else notice that, though? Like how he's just kind of in his ear in this chapter and how that maester was in the other guy's ear in the other chapter? Well, yeah, and like, but also the administrating uh, the milk of the poppy. Doran asks him, uh, Meister, could I trouble you for some milk of the poppy? A thimble will suffice. And it's just like, wait a minute, he's willingly dosing himself, something that we know is going to really knock him out. It's basically like taking morphine, I guess, is what the equivalent is here. And he's willingly doing this, and you're thinking, man, Doran... As a prince is just withering away, and his his illness is becoming the is getting the better of him, and he can't do anything. And then he turns right around and imprisons the Sand Snake. So actually, that leads in perfectly to my own, which is Doran's imprisonment of the Sand Snakes, um, because that is just a super badass move that nobody saw coming. Um, but also, yeah. especially me, because I'm thinking, man, you know, this Maester is certainly could take advantage of him for how drugged up he is, or will be, you know, pretty much constantly all the time. And then he goes and does something like this. He's just in his ear whispering like worm tongue. He's like, he's not welcome here. Oh, basically. nice comparison. You know, I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just whispering in his ear. Yeah. Like, what are these guys doing? What's the deal here? Yeah, they're up to something. I didn't catch that at all. That's awesome. It's not like it's even like necessarily bad, but it's like, what the fuck are they doing? Like, maybe tell Prince Doran he can just, you know, have less of a thimble if he really cares. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. No, my prince, you should remain in pain a little bit. It helps sharpen your senses. That's true. But I, I just feel like out of out of any time for the prince's senses to be sharpened, it's when he returns to Sunspear. I know that he's in a lot of pain from traveling, but he's back at Sunspear, and he's just really imprisoning right. his brother's daughters. I uh, agree with Hannah's own, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll give it to Tain. Tain. When she gives the embroidered piece that she had been making to Prince Duran and it showed her father Prince Oberyn mounted on a sand steed and armored in all red smiling to which she said when I finish it's yours to help you remember him which was cold (laughs) very cold well those are our owns now it's time to read some from the listeners are you out there listeners are you out there is anybody out there not if you can hear us. If you listen to this show and you're not sending us owns, you should be. Ask yourself <laughs> why. <laughs> ask yourself why. <laughs> Reevaluate. I'd like to think that there is just a a beautiful collection of of people out there diving into this. What will eventually become a just a, however many courses. I can't think of how many courses. Piece. <laughs> Those of you who are reading along um, with us and are catching things, uh, even peripheral to what we're catching. For instance, Joe Schaefer, who sent in that quote about the ghost of High Heart. Um, and that was uh, Joe's own for the Prophet chapter. But moving on, uh, Joe also blessed us with an own for the Captain of the Guards chapter. My own goes to the Sand Snakes and all of Dorne for being, how do you say this, <laughs> way better in the books. And I agree. Uh, thank you, Joe, for sending that thank in. Thank you, Joe. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the, the initials JS uh, are strong with everybody uh, this week because our second email comes from a different J.S. who asked to be referred to as J.S. They say, Prophet Own goes to Stannis. 
for destroying the golden stream. Is this golden stream? Isn't it storm? It well, is the golden storm. A golden stream. And I like, I don't know which I like better, actually. Freudian slip. <laughs> Prophet Owen goes to Stannis for destroying the golden storm and inadvertently transforming Aaron Greyjoy into the damp hair. I think one of the major recurring themes of Dance with Dragons, although it does apply to Feast for Crows as well, is the meaning of identity. And this is a solid way to start. Yeah, that's a good point. Thinking ahead, JS. And JS's Captain Own goes to likewise uh, goes likewise to a character who does not appear, the fourth Sand Snake Sorella, who is busy, as Doran puts it, with her game. In time, you may be able to riddle out what it is, but in the meantime, she gets a known for potentially being more level-headed than her sisters. All right, just a little tease at the end there. And uh, wrapping up emails, though, Lady Bender Fry wrote in and said, The Prophet, uh, FFC, unfortunately, I have to give this own to Aaron, even though I despise the sexist, manipulative motherfucker. He single-handedly <laughs> was able to steer the vote for a king in the direction that he wanted. That's some scary power right there. Talk about relevant discussion, too, because as a man, he's not without his political uh, wishes. Right, guys? Right. Right. Over on uh, Facebook, Jennifer Bandel wrote in, the for the prophet, own to all the references. Grayscale is brought up. Theon and Asha are talked about. Stannis smashing the Iron Fleet is talked about. And we learn a lot of disturbing things about the Greyjoy family. (laughs) They drink salt water. Mm. (laughs) For the captain of the guards, owned Prince Duran for speaking kindly to all of Oberyn's daughters and then promptly (laughs) ordering them to be locked away because there are threats to the welfare of Dorne. All but Sorella, who is not in Dorne, but loves Old Town. She loves it. Mm -hmm. On Twitter, Momo. My owns are to the mysteries this week. What's up with Euron and the creaking door? And what Sand Snake Sorella up to away from Dorne? You guys like Sorella. And two parts rye, owned to the Storm Gods for putting Balon Greyjoy in his place, which is dashed upon the rocks. Thank you, two parts rye. Uh, back to Facebook. <laughs> Kim Gabrielson says, owned for the prophet goes to Aaron for forcing that kid off his high horse and down into the mud, literally. Mm-hmm. And for Captain of Guards, owned goes to George R. R. Martin's use of the Sand Snakes. Each one has a different idea of how they want to take revenge, and they all have the eyes of the Red Viper. Brienne of Tarth, my Aaron Owen goes to the look that makes maids feel faint and sends children shrieking to their mothers. I'm wondering if he's available for babysitting. <laughs> Don't you mean baby drowning? Yes. And her other own goes to Duran for his perceived inaction. Keeping your temper can be useful. Jerry on Twitter, my own for the prophet, goes to the drowned god. You get drowned, literally, then come back to life. He owns your ass. No doubt. And Reese Palacio uh, on Facebook, owned for the prophet, goes to Aaron, who at six and ten was a sack of wine with legs and could piss further than any man. I guess we all have to have a talent, right? Right. Uh, right. And owned for the captain of the guards goes to Prince Duran's gout, which was so bad it needed to be covered so not to scare the little children. Or Eric. I guess or Eric. That is yeah. Name. Or, or me, not I guess. Not Eric that, as well. Yeah. Um, Brad Beeger says, own for the prophet goes to Aaron, who drinks salt water from a skin like it ain't no thing. It ain't no thing. It ain't no thing. And Emily no Bryce thing. also says, the own her own, the drowned god priests own their recruits, drowning them. Glad Aaron has a good track record. Erica Same. on Twitter, 
Home for the Prophet goes to Aaron Greyjoy for singing and dancing, urinating farther than, farther than anyone, and being a sack of wine with legs. And Alma on Facebook, Alma Bring, she writes, The Prophet own goes to Aaron's seaweed tangled dreadlocks and the nickname they gave rise to. I went for longer than I'd like to, admitting, thinking his name was pronounced damn fair and wondering what it meant. <laughs> for the captain of guards, Owen goes to the casual mentioning of being abed with the Fowler twins when I heard the news. <laughs> the index tells us the Fowler twins are named Jane and Jenilyn. Dorn, where lesbian polyamory doesn't get so much as a raised eyebrow. Disowned the show, decision to deny us Dornis gender blind inheritance laws. Seriously, it would only take one sentence. Here, here. Yeah, exactly. And I hope that the uh, Marcella plot extends further. Agreed. So that's it. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you want to write in for our next two episodes? I think we've all got one more own for you. This one's for you. (laughs) I get get an own? What are you talking about? You get an own. You get an own. You see, it's um, a little little drowned god. A mermaid told me that it was uh, your name, Danmara. (laughs) and uh hannah and micah have something to say about that i think eric has a solo to perform nope that he's been working on definitely don't have a solo i will erase it in my individual file i will do this (laughs) happy name Name day day to you happy Happy name day to you happy Happy name name day day, dear dear Zach. zach Happy, Happy name, name day, day to you. Oh, we should you start a band. Wow. Happy birthday. Happy thank name you. day. Uh, thank you so much. I am a year older. And wiser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I don't know uh, how to... I'm just going to say what I was going to say. All right. Which is <laughs> right into the show. If you uh, want to send us owns for Cersei one from a piece or of wish crows you a happy and... birthday, <laughs> yes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and Tyrion one from A Dance of Dragons. Ooh. I guess the the day you are getting this episode actually is my birthday, so uh, maybe wait until the day after because then I'll be able to see your owns because I'm going to be busy. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means, <laughs> I have no uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the Game of Thrones Twitter feed is is reserved. Like a party would be reserved. Like a party room would be observed. It's just for Zach to party tomorrow. So don't send your owns in then. No. Yeah. But if you <laughs> choose right. to do so afterwards, there's a number of ways you can do so, and I believe you've heard <laughs> all of them, uh, which we uh, just read from. You can uh, tweet at us at Game of Thrones. Scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com/slash Game of Thrones, or send us an email. At contact at gameofowns.com. Yeah. That covers it. We got equal <laughs> representation this week. That was great. And it was really fun to finally do um, these two chapters. I, I, I As we were reading through A Feast for Crows, I know I like talked to you guys about how much I loved um, the Greyjoy chapters. And Eric, as you have begun to read forward and have tackled mm-hmm. all that stuff, I know that you and I were talking about it ourselves. And I don't know. We're really excited for it to be in the show and just to like, to keep going through these excellent books together in a feast with dragons with you guys on the podcast. This is this has been a lot of fun. Completely agreed. Yeah, I uh, I love going back through these books, reading them in a different order. Like you said, we have Cersei and Tyrion uh, next week. Cersei, we've never had a point of view chapter from her before. Yeah, uh, so that's going to be interesting. And Tyrion, uh, you know, for those who read uh, Feast for Crows and then A Dance with Dragons and you know, when the books were released back in the day, uh, you had to wait a very long time to uh, find out exactly what happened to Tyrion after he uh, 
put an arrow bolt into Tywin's bowels. So uh, you get to uh, meet up with him and see what he's doing. How life's going. How you doing, Tyrion? <laughs> yeah. Where do you, we're nowhere to go but up after that. <laughs> <laughs> or east, rather. If you want to listen to us talk about other stuff with each other, which is sometimes weird and sometimes funny, uh, you can head over to our Patreon and donate so that you can download our show, squad A Squad of, of Ice, Ice and, fire. and Fire. Yeah, so um, Squad of Ice and Fire, it's real. It's where it's happening. That's actually a thing. She's not making it up. Yeah, it's it's real. We, so. we don't edit it, and we leave in all of Eric's trains that, that pass by. All of them. <laughs> Uncut, unedited, raw emotion. Yeah. I get like 25 cents every time a train goes by. <laughs> You're a very wealthy man, Eric Skull. <laughs> also, uh, what, what, should we plug the fact that you and Micah are in the the heavy swing of things right now with MuggleCast? Uh, oh, yeah, we can. Um, cause that's I think just, that we should. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shit, I'm not prepared to say anything about well, that. Well, that's good, um, all right, because I'll be prepared on your behalf. Micah and Eric are together on another podcast, and they speak poetically uh about harry potter with our friend andrew sims and they have a lot of fun doing it eric is a very big fan of the fantastic beasts teaser trailer aren't you eric sure Zach. <laughs> do you listen do you even listen to that show <laughs> yeah. i don't i just well you and i have talked about it. i know you don't like it mike yeah, you yeah, like yeah the trailer about it. No, no, no. but uh but ultimately no i mean this is this is something that we very animatedly uh and enthusiastically discuss harry potter much of the way, if you listen to this show first, uh, have come to expect from Game of Thrones, except also with uh, a lot of emphasis on all that new stuff J.K. Rowling is um, giving gifting Ilvermorny, to us right? fans. Mm-hmm. Ilvermorny. Oh, that, that And gem. we've been doing it for over 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, but definitely check that out. It's, um, so it's mogulcast.com. Uh, and the Patreon is patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We did just launch Patreon for MuggleCast. Um, and that is an effort to be able to produce uh, more episodes more often. So super excited. Uh, we have a lot of cool goals over there for uh, mostly old school Harry Potter fans will appreciate the most. But I, I appreciated all of them. And we appreciate all of you that are listening. To those of you who subscribe to our Patreon feed, but to those of you who listen to our podcast and continue to share it with your friends and interact with us on Twitter. I think it's been a really, we've had a really good time producing, I think now it's 312 episodes and the sixth season is approaching. We're going to get trailers and more interesting things soon. Events are going to start rolling around and before we know it, we're going to be mid-season there's going to be hundreds of owns cascading upon our wall. Mike is going to be watching it with sovereign eyes. It'll be a beautiful, beautiful time. Yeah. Might have to get Sam to help out, too. I think Sam's, we're yeah. about 10 weeks away. I can't wait. What is dead can never die. But uh, but rises. rises. Stronger. Harder. Faster. Harder. Where faster. It gets. Where it gets. Where it gets. <laughs> <laughs> faster. Stronger.
faster.